Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. If it's August, that means it's time for the annual mid-year roundup of almost everything that happened at Council for the first seven months of 2023. So let's begin with January. The first council meeting of the year was a workshop on January 10 about the strategic plan that had been developed in the years 2019 and 2023. It was meant to be a further orientation session for council, especially the new members, to talk about how the previous council came up with the strategic plan and how it intersects with city business. The meeting was also offering some pre-budget work, since the budget is organized by the strategic plan pillars, Work on the new strategic plan would begin later in January. On that same day, Council held its first committee of the whole meeting since July, and it had a pretty straightforward agenda with just three items, including staff recognitions, the plan for the pending external audit, and a snafu concerning the appointment of committee chairs. The regular meeting on January the 24th was mostly about ratifying that committee business, which was a few weeks prior to that. There was also some sad news at that January 24th meeting, the passing of former Ward 1 City Councilor Bob Bell. Mayor Kim Guthrie explained that Bell was in the middle of fulfilling a retirement dream by revisiting an area of Chile that was literally named after him, Bell's Bay. Guthrie also praised Bell as someone who did a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff to help people at City Council. This meeting was... Also, formally, the kickoff process that would produce the 2024-27 to version of the strategic plan, Sabine Matheson, principal of Strategy Corps, Inc., led council through the collected feedback that they received from one-on-one conversations with the councillors so that they can better understand the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, or the SWAT, that the city is facing. There was a lot of agreement about Guelph's strengths, but Council highlighted a couple of weaknesses like how there's still an impression that Guelph is a tough place to do business and how the high cost of housing is making it difficult to attract and retain people who work in the arts. Opportunities? Some councillors said that there needs to be some more relationship building across a variety of areas and that the city needs to get better about talking about its successes. There was also a lot of consensus about the threats, including our fractured media landscape and the lack of trust in institutions. Council also offered some suggestions for ways to update the five pillars, including accelerating the implementation of the 10-year transit plan, voter turnout in elections, improving sports amenities, and making city facilities both physically and economically more accessible. Work on the new strategic plan would continue in February. The next day, Council had the very important work of reaffirming the 2023 budget, which was also the day of a big winter storm across Ontario. The bottom line is that Council was able to shave off another half a percentage point from the levy increase for 2023, but that may have come at the expense of tougher decisions that will now need to be made for the 2024-27 to multi-year budget. We're going to see about that later this year. The presentation itself largely focused on budget pressures, including inflation, the supply chain, COVID, the environment, economic conditions, and yes, legislative changes. A dozen delegates had some of those same concerns and added affordable housing, age-friendly recreation for seniors, mental health, support for local businesses, and, naturally, pickleball. The first motion of the afternoon was about restoring the affordable housing reserve by depositing the usual $500,000 into the account, which wasn't recommended in the budget, but an hour of debate was killed as council went back and forth about how to fund the recommendation and whether the motion was in order since it contravened the main recommendation, which cancelled the transfer. Council eventually found a way to approve that. The next two motions made the Kids Ride Free program and the sliding scale affordable bus pass a permanent feature for Guelph Transit. Council then made $202,500 in funding for welcoming streets, a permanent part of the budget by beefing up that community 
Benefit Agreement. They also approved $300,000 in funding from the base for the Business Service Agencies Agreement after being persuaded that Guelph underspends on supporting business advocacy groups. A motion crafted by Mayor Cam Guthrie asked Council to take $150,000 from the Contingency Reserve to seek out expertise that will allow the city to take stock of all its social service obligations, the gaps in the system, and local service agencies that offer help in order to better understand the need in the community. CAO Scott Stewart said that the goal of that was to bring back a report to Council in the fall in advance of debating the next multi-year budget, and that report will be coming back very soon. In terms of subtractions from the budget, Councillor Christine Billings made a motion to fund the $500,000 in budgeted impacts from Bill 23 from the Tax Operating Contingency Reserve. She noted that the likely $9 million positive variance from 2022 or the Government of Ontario's promise to soften the blow to municipal governments from Bill 23's changes will pay off later. Staff said that their original recommendation was made out of an abundance of caution about the known unknowns from Bill 23, but despite the warning, Council voted in favour of Billing's motion. Not as successful was a motion from Councillor Dan Gibson, who wanted to take out nearly a million dollars in phase-in costs for operating expenses at the future South End Community Centre and the new Central Library. Gibson explained that it would be a good move to delay the cost for a year since the capital projects themselves were delayed, but the majority of council felt that it would be fiscally imprudent to stop the phase-in now and take a bigger hit later. The motion failed, and his subsequent motion to remove half the amount also failed. That would bring the total levy impact down to 4.46%, and that is as low as it would go. Despite Guthrie's request to have a unanimous vote for the reaffirmed budget, Gibson and Billings ended up voting against. Council then passed three additional motions, one that will see the City of Guelph once again raising the red flag to the federal and provincial governments about homelessness and mental health funding, another to refer pickleball facility queries to the 2024 budget, and a third to also refer a plan for expended amenities in Dovercliff Park to the 2024 budget. The meeting wrapped nearly nine hours after it began as council staff and the media headed out into the snow. When the next committee meeting started in February, there was the presentation of the Chief Administrative Officer's 2023 performance objectives, and the objectives were fairly predictable if you follow City Hall business. Our Food Future also had a presentation, which was mostly good news about the success of the Smart City's office and its goals of fighting food insecurity and creating a circular food economy. Committee then turned to the Operation Facilities Long-Term Plan Update. In brief, the once elaborate plan to combine all of the city's operations onto one campus in the East End has been downsized to only housing the transit and fleet facilities. Staff outlined how they chose the site for these facilities at Stone and Watson, offering a number of development difficulties, including stormwater management and a very different topography all over the site. And they explained how the city's got to focus on transit because there's a federal grant to electrify the transit fleet, and the power needs at the current transit facility are just inadequate beyond a couple of chargers. Councillor Gibson started asking for a budget number, and staff were a bit shy about giving him one. There was acknowledgement that the smaller footprint for the building would mean a cheaper construction project, but it took a couple of more tries before Councillor Billings finally got a rough estimate. 200 to $250 million. DCAO Jane Holmes asked not to be held to those numbers, though. The focus now, she said, is to get the new transit facility completed before the federal grant expires in 2027. Many committee members were concerned about that uncertainty. Councillor Dominique O'Rourke, who was chairing the committee as the head of Infrastructure Development and Enterprise, said that she wants to make sure that the priority is public buildings like the South End Community Centre or the Baker District. 
And she's also worried about the debt capacity of the city. O'Rourke added that she wants to see a more precise plan of attack before the 2024-27 budget process, again, later this year. The final item was the formal rollout of the Guelph Greener Homes program, which started last month. City Council spent Valentine's Day considering the intricacies of a new tower at a busy downtown intersection. The project from Fusion Homes proposed a 23-story mixed-use building at the corner of Wellington and Wyndham with 250 residential units, three commercial-slash-residential units, and 714 square meters of retail commercial space. Predictably, there were a number of concerns, and the site planner tried to address them in advance, including why the tower sat on top an above-ground parking structure instead of an underground one. The water table under the property makes that a non-starter. Fusion Homes VP Ryan Scott was also pressured about affordability and conceded that these units would likely go on sale at full market value. Five delegates spoke to some of their concerns, and they were more or less what you would expect for a project like this. Too much traffic, too much height, not enough parking, not enough affordability, and a challenge in matching the character of the area. In terms of other notes from Council, there were concerns about the massing of the building, the limited setbacks, the parking situation, assurances about trees and landscaping along along the road, and yes, the utter lack of affordable units being offered. All concerns, though, ended up being moot because Fusion pulled the application before the decision meeting in May. Before the next strategic plan development workshop on that Wednesday night, there was a brief special meeting of council that took place almost entirely in camera. When it was over, Mayor Cam Guthrie announced that staff had given direction to talk to CN Rail about concerns raised by people in the area of the junction about an especially long shunting that kept the noise along the train tracks going for hours at night. As for the workshop, which was entirely virtual thanks to some bad weather, Council worked to further refine the five pillars that will make up the new plan. Council shared some overall commentary that would come to form some of the overarching themes of the night. Some noted that the goals in each pillar needed to be simpler. Others noted that they needed to be more direct and less ambiguous. Another note was that the plan needs to focus on the things Guelph can accomplish while recognizing that some directions are imposed on Guelph from upper levels of government. The focus of the regular meeting on February 28th was the proposed pledge to the Government of Ontario to build 18,000 homes in Guelph by 2031, our share of the 1.5 million total, which is the goal that the Government of Ontario has laid out. But first, Councillor O'Rourke brought a motion connected to the report about the operations campus, a request for information about the multi-year budget process around updated costs and timelines. O'Rourke said that she wanted to have a well-informed debate before enshrining the project in the capital forecast. That brought Council to the pledge. Staff carefully laid out how this was easier said than done. According to the last official plan amendment passed just last year, the city was going to aim for 1,205 new units per year, and the most productive year for new housing in Guelph in the last 20 years was 2004, when just under 1,500 new units were built. On average in the last two decades, Guelph has built a little more than 1,000 units per year, and now we're being asked to build 2,000. But in the interest of being good sports and because there's really genuinely a housing crisis, city staff crafted a pledge that will see Guelph commit to the 18,000 goal by reviewing the capital forecast and master plans, reviewing options to accelerate infrastructure, creating a process to front-end agreements with developers, and update the city's debt forecast. At the same time, council would ask the Ontario government to make a pledge to provide new long-term municipal funding, address Parkland shortages, make it so that the minister be exempt from appealing secondary plans and zoning bylaws, the return of bonusing, the clearing of the environmental assessment backlog, and a commit to building more institutions like hospitals, schools, and long-term care homes. Why issue demands to the government of Ontario that they probably won't respond to? 
CAO Stewart, in answering that question, noted that this was a pledge that demanded a lot of the city when there were a lot of factors around housing that are outside of the city's ability to control. There were three delegates who spoke to the pledge. Two of them were community members who didn't want council to sign it. The third was Josh Kaufman, VP of the Guelph and District Home Builders Association. Kaufman liked much of what was in the pledge, but he didn't like the caveat about holding all stakeholders, including developers, equally accountable if Guelph fails to get to 18,000 units by the end of 2031. In terms of Council's commentary, several amendments were offered to the original two-part recommendation, including the addition of wording that said that Council recognizes that meeting the goals of the pledge is dependent on provincial action. A request that the province make it a priority to invest in brownfield remediation. A request that the province donate surplus land for co-op subsidized and non-profit housing. And an ask to the federal government for more money to go to housing. The most controversial amendment, though, was a request that the government of Ontario freeze changes in population targets for the next five years so that municipalities can catch up with all the recent changes. Guthrie enthusiastically endorsed that motion, but Gibson said that he didn't like the idea of telling people that they can't move here. Guthrie rebuked that ultimately the water capacity of the area is telling us how many people can move here and that the amendment was approved 12 to 1 with Gibson as the only dissent. Council finished up the night by approving the five-part recommendation to endorse the complicated funding plan for the 29-bed expansion at the Elliott community. There were two additional motions from the closed session, one that made approval of the expansion contingent on the hiring of a certified project management professional, and a monthly report requested to come from the Committee of Management of the Elliott through the length of the project. It was a marathon meeting at the March Committee of the Whole, and it started with a special staff acknowledgement to David Elloway, the retiring Guelph Fire Chief. The first big item was the one canopy tree planting strategy. Staff laid out all the work that has to be done in order to get to the city's tree canopy of 40% by 2070, and that includes the planting of between 19,000 and 25,000 trees per year. This would mean spending about $3.6 million per year, as opposed to the $687,000 we spend now. And that's just the cost of trees in the first couple of years of maintenance. After passing the tree planting strategy recommendations unanimously by the way committee looked at the business licensing of short-term rental accommodations it was determined after much back and forth with stakeholders in the community to have a policy that limits short-term rentals like airbnbs to two properties the one that you live in and maybe rent some portion of short term and the one that you expressly own for the purpose of making a short-term rental while the vast majority of council thought that the proposed recommendation hit the right balance, Councillor Gibson once again took on the role of contrarian by asking staff in many different ways if the city puts a cap on owning any other types of businesses. His council colleagues made the point that short-term rental properties are technically zoned as residential, which makes them different from other types of businesses like hotels or convenience stores which have their own zoning. Gibson ended up being the one councillor to vote against the recommendation. Then committee heard about the plan to finally get going on the South End Community Centre and Infrastructure Development and Enterprises Services Chair O'Rourke was absolutely giddy about the opportunity. She's also the Ward 6 City Councillor where the South End Community Centre will sit. GM of Facilities and Energy Management Antti Vilko and his colleagues explained that the use of a construction management model has led to millions of dollars in savings that will bring the cost of the building down to a more comfortable $115.5 million. Ian Scott, the manager of facility design and construction, explained that while supply chain pressures, labor shortages, and inflation have all cooled off, the overall cost of building the SECC is not going to get any better than this. Committee asked some questions about reviewing rec services after the South End Community Center is built. 
Whether the majority of DC funding is still viable after Bill 23, the parking demands of the site, and some of the cosmetic changes that have been made. Mostly, though, there were just expressions of gratitude and happiness that the project is back on track. The groundbreaking is still scheduled for some time this fall. At the March planning meeting, council unanimously approved the new seniors' residence at 1408 Gordon Street and 33 to 41 Arkell Road, and then dived into the big issue of the night, the approval of the Phase 1 of the Heritage Conservation District on the Ontario Reformatory lands. Senior Heritage Planner Stephen Robinson and Joel Conrad, the Cultural Heritage Lead from WSP Consulting, took counsel through the creation of Phase 1 step-by-step and how they came up with the boundary for the HCD. They also laid out how the HCD will interface with the already existing Guelph Innovation District secondary plan for the site. The HCD will protect the past, while the GID plan will guide the future, was essentially the answer. When it was time for delegates, there was near-universal agreement that the Phase 1 report was a strong start for this process and that Council should heartily approve it. The only real note of concern was about the fate of the old wooden trestle bridge, especially after a March 2nd report in Guelph Today that said Infrastructure Ontario was moving to demolish the structure. Looking at ways to protect the bridge was the point of a special additional motion that was brought by Councillor Kathy Downer, which directs staff to continue discussions with Infrastructure Ontario in regard to the bridge and then bring a report back to Council with those results. That motion was passed unanimously. The full recommendation, including the proposed boundaries, were then also passed unanimously. So look for the statutory planning meeting for Phase 2 of the report to come back to Council sometime later this year and for final passage to some to happen sometime later next year. The next night, Council took part in a workshop called Economic Development and Tourism Unpacked. This was the first meeting to take place during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, and it was the first in a month-long series of meetings that began at 10 a.m. Staff suggested the move last year as a way to encourage participation by observant Muslims who fast all day during the month and break it at sundown. As for the workshop itself, economic development staff led Council through a comprehensive presentation about the current business environment in Guelph, the challenges facing businesses big and small, and how City Hall intersects with local business leaders and entrepreneurs. One of the conclusions of the workshop was to point out how economic development is also connected to the demand for affordable housing. If people can find somewhere else that's affordable to live, they might commute to Guelph but they also might just find a new job already in that affordable community. This trend also hurts the university talent pipeline because if young people can't find an affordable place to live in Guelph, they're not going to stay either. When council finally got its turn to ask questions, they focused on accessibility, the lack of regional transit options, and equity in terms of socioeconomic conditions and the promotion of areas around the city. The regular meeting this month was relatively brief. There was only one item from committee that was held over for, for further discussion, and it was business licensing for short-term rental accommodations. Councillor Downer took the opportunity to ask staff a couple of follow-up questions, one about enforcement, which will be complaint-based like most bylaws, and the other about loopholes. Downer said that she's heard about how some landlords are using short-term rentals as a way of working around oversight from the Landlord-Tenant Board and staff said that they've heard similar things. The intention with the regulation, staff said, is to deter abuse, and the recommendation was finally approved unanimously. The real energy at Council that week was around a workshop initiating the review of the Downtown Parking Master Plan at issue. How much can the city lean on parking as a driver of economic activity while encouraging people to make the shift to non-personal vehicle modes of transportation? City staff and the consultants shared a lot of information about how parking downtown has changed over the last 10 years and the challenges presented by the pandemic and the new demand for growth pushed by the provincial government. What does all this mean? New models of work that see fewer people appearing at office in person, as well as the fate of the cooperatives building when they move out of their current downtown HQ into their new building in the south end, 
and then there's the Baker District redevelopment. Council also looked at how any downtown parking plan had to align with the transportation master plan and the then-upcoming new comprehensive zoning bylaw. Water and transit was the focus of April's committee meeting. The first matter given full attention was the 2022 Water Services Annual Report and Summary. Procedure was about all there was for a committee to talk about because there was only one adverse drinking water quality incident, or AWQI, in 2022, and it was caused during road construction with no water customers affected. Chair O'Rourke noted that water use in the community dropped 1% for the year despite our rapidly rising population. The biggest item of the agenda was the transit fare strategy. Staff laid out the plan, which outlined several changes over the next few years, but the biggest changes are to the monthly pass, which will now take on the appearance of a loyalty program. According to staff, the benefit of a fare capping model is that you end up paying as you go and then ride free if you get to the cap of 32 rides in a month. That way, you don't have to pay up front for the full pass, and you only use what you need. Notes from Council included looping in the Downtown Guelph Business Association about coordinating a corporate bus pass for small business owners, and the possibility of reserving some portion of fares for transit capital projects. There were also some questions about the lack of pre-meeting consultation with the Transit Advisory Committee and how Metrolink staffing issues at the train station are the reason why it's closed so often. Committee unanimously approved the recommendations, and then they considered an additional motion from Mayor Cam Guthrie to direct staff to come back with recommendations for increasing accessibility to bus passes for high school students and seniors in advance of the multi-year budget discussion later this year. That motion was also passed unanimously. April's planning meeting considered the intricacies of the updated comprehensive zoning bylaw now modernized after almost three decades. Staff walked council through all the changes made and not made since the presentation of the CZBL at the statutory planning meeting last year, including particular emphasis on those driveway widths, parking minimums, and the use of shipping containers as storage. There were many snips and edits and adjustments proposed by council, a change to the wording for the maximum width of an attached garage on RL2 zoned properties, for example, the retention of current parking regulations for apartment buildings outside the downtown, and the removal of the maximum size of 80 meters squared for additional residential units, with council saying that it's hard to build tiny homes for aging parents making accommodations for walkers or wheelchairs with that restriction in place. On driveway widths, Councillor Gibson brought a motion that would allow a 0.8-meter expansion of driveway widths for semi-detached homes and on-street townhomes only. Gibson said that the persistent issues of driveways being a little bit bigger than what's allowed in the current bylaw will be resolved for 80% of properties affected with just this one motion. Most of council seemed to feel that this was a good compromise for an issue that Gibson has repeatedly reminded council has been on the back burner for six years now. In the end, there was only a couple of holdouts and the motion was passed 11 to 2. Council then unanimously approved the amended recommendations and passed an additional motion asking staff to investigate opportunities to remove winter on-street parking restrictions citywide as part of the follow-up work to the Transportation Master Plan, an information report about allowing as-of-right permissions for having more than three units on one property with a low-density residential designation should also come back to Council in the first quarter of 2025. As for the new comprehensive zoning bylaw itself, it's now in front of the Ontario Land Tribunal, subject to over a dozen different appeals. Also at this April meeting, Council approved the heritage designation for 65 Delhi Street and the Sustainable Development Checklist. They also overrode staff's decision to refuse the signed bylaw variance and allow the Smith Valeriat Law Firm to install two illuminated fascia signs at the top of the third story of their building in the Hanlon Creek Business Park. 
Councillor Caron did propose an amendment to allow only non-illuminated signs in the name of controlling light pollution and protecting bird migration, but that failed 3-10. to 10. Council then unanimously approved the variance without any conditions at all. At the end of April, Council aimed to refine their ideas for the next version of the strategic plan. Much of the initial discussion focused on how the results of the plan will be measured, and some of the specific wording and language in the now four pillars. More than one councillor also made the note that they weren't sure how the document was clear enough on making equity and accessibility a priority, and whether or not there were proper goals to measure it. Councillor Downer took the wheel in Mayor Guthrie's absence for April's regular meeting. Despite the change, the meeting took off smoothly with the passage of the majority of Committee of the Whole Business, plus the new appointments to various local boards and committees. The new transit fare strategy was back front and center, and with no new information, Council went right into hearing delegations, and the most universal theme of those comments was the sudden 19% increase in the price of the monthly pass. In response to some of those critiques, Council fiddled with the original staff recommendations, starting with an amendment from Councillor Aaron Caton to spread out the monthly pass increase over the next two years. The change would mean that the new adult monthly pass will cost just short of $90 come September. Council leaned on affordability to justify the phase-in, especially since pass holders count as the most loyal transit users. There was also a word of caution from CAO Stewart about putting too much off on the 2024-27 multi-year budget, but giving a bit of grace in the name of a smaller increase won out, and Council approved the amended fee increase. Caton's second amendment concerned an increase to transfer times from the proposed 60 minutes to a longer 90-minute time frame, and that too was unanimously passed. The last item of the night was a motion to support Bill 5, which updates municipal codes of conduct to stop abuse and harassment among local political leaders. Councillor O'Rourke and Mayor Guthrie met with the bill's sponsor, Orleans MPP Stephen Blaze, at Queen's Park to talk about it a couple of weeks earlier, and Guelph became the 58th municipality to officially support that bill. Money was the main focus of the May meeting of Committee of the Whole, specifically the operating surplus of $13,698,567 from 2022. City staff got to a 2.8% positive variance despite a tight labor market, escalating fuel prices, seven interest rate hikes, and later period pandemic challenges. The most obvious question about the 2022 finances was the first one asked. If the city got to $13 million more than it needed last year, then do we need to raise taxes as high in 2024? Tara Baker, the GM of finance and the city treasurer, explained that the factors that led to the surplus were largely outside of the city's direct control. And she also noted that there are even more vagaries ahead, thanks to Bill 23. In terms of $6 million saved on capital, Baker said that this was owed to efficiencies being found when work on one project was combined with another. There was also a specific question about the reserves for water, wastewater, and stormwater specifically. If those reserves are at 100% right now, then why was staff recommending to put more money in them? Baker said that the city is not collecting too much, her words, for those reserves, but the long-term capital plan is significant, and they are trying to manage rate increases so that there's no big jump year to year. Staff are also in the process of reviewing the targets for those reserve funds, since they're only meant to cover the cost of infrastructure renewal and not necessarily the cost of growth and upgrades. Committee approved the 19-part recommendation that deposits the surplus across several reserve funds. Council also approved the allocation of $375,000 for a wildlife crossing on Maltby Road East, which is presently under construction. After that, there was a three-part motion to have the City of Guelph join Ontario's e-scooter pilot program by having staff develop a bylaw for the July Committee of the Whole meeting, which meant sidestepping the usual public engagement process. Why the rush? Well, it can take as long as eight months to a year to get the formal process completed, and by then it would be less than a year 
before the end of the pilot, at which point the province would put their own rules into effect based on the pilot's results. Ultimately, any misgivings about coming up with a bylaw this quickly and dirtily, if that's a word, were suppressed by committee because there are people in Guelph riding e-scooters right now and there are no regulations to guide their safe and lawful use. The motions were approved unanimously. At the May planning meeting and after quickly dispatching the approval of the heritage designation of the Alice Street Clubhouse and building bylaw updates, as well as giving staff direction over negotiations with the Guelph Professional Firefighters Association Local 467 and OPSU Local 231, Council spent nearly three hours on the staff response to the Ontario government's decision on official plan amendment number 80. There were 18 changes in all, but the most controversial were the allowance of 23-story builds downtown, a reduction in employment lands in the Guelph Innovation District, and the redesignation of 41 to 45 George Street to high density after Council pointedly made it low density. Also, the verdict of the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing was final, so no chance to appeal. After Council voted unanimously to receive the report, Councillor Caron brought forward a multi-part motion to follow up on some of the issues raised, and some of these points were easier to dispatch than others. The first motion asked staff to outline the financial and human resources impact from OPA 80 and Bill 23. This got unanimous support, with the exception of Guthrie, who felt that the clause was redundant and staff was doing that work already. Another clause asked staff to bring forward resources to expedite the Cultural Heritage Action Plan, or CHAP, during the budget process this fall, especially on lands affected by OPA 80. It also asked staff to include potential financial incentives for conservation and restoration of designated properties. Councillor O'Rourke expressed concern about that some projects might leapfrog others, and it might uh, potentially try and stop changes made to the OPA through the proverbial back door. But Melissa Aldenante, the manager of policy planning and urban design, said that it was her and her staff's impression that the goal of the motion was to get the two current study projects done quickly and then find new opportunities for heritage protection and the clause was approved eight to five the next clause asks for public consultation for new view corridors of the basilica of our lady when the official plan comes up for review again in five years there was some more back and forth about the impact on development and how changes to both the downtown secondary plan and the gid secondary plan might limit those options for new corridors but the clause was also approved, in this case 9-4. to four. Another clause asked staff to come back to council with a plan for a new downtown park in the multi-year budget, and this one passed 8-5. to five. Then council turned to a motion to direct the mayor to send a letter to the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, expressing council's concern about the OPA decision, and that's when things got really interesting. Guthrie said that the meeting had been an exercise in not being cooperative and that sending the letter was going to create issues for the city's intergovernmental affairs office while also poking the government of Ontario in the eye. For rebuttal, some councillors noted that the OPA, including the version that was passed by council last year, didn't do anything that the province didn't ask for, while others made a pro-democracy argument that it shouldn't be considered a bad thing for one level of government to express concern about the decisions made by another. In any event, Mayor Guthrie was the only no-vote in directing him to send a letter to Minister Clark on behalf of Council. It took a little over 30 minutes to dispatch the end-of-the-month business at City Council, and maybe the most consequential bit happened in closed session. Mayor Guthrie announced that direction was given to staff to finalize a new agreement between the City of Guelph and the Ontario Public Service Employees Union Local 231. In the open meeting, the Capital Budget Monitoring Report was pulled so that Councillor Downer could attach an additional motion to approve half a million dollars from the Growth Reserve Fund to cover the cost of the Ward West Cultural Heritage Study. Downer's argument was that getting heritage districts done was a way to preserve more heritage faster, and that since consultants are hired to do the heavy lifting to study the districts, it gives heritage staff itself more time to work on those individual designations. Downer's motion was passed unanimously. 
Last but not least, council had to ratify a request from the Guelph Police Services Board to spend $26,000 from the Police Operating Contingency Reserve for a pilot project to have more dedicated downtown patrol officers. Some councillors wanted to be heard that the decision to have more police patrols downtown was not a statement on the apparent lack of safety downtown, nor was it a message that council sees people suffering from mental illness and homelessness as a police problem to solve. Guthrie noted that the police are also collecting data about their interactions downtown, which will go to informing new safety strategies in the core, including solutions through social services. That motion was also approved unanimously. Guelph City Council was joined by the Wellington County Council for a special joint workshop on the Guelph-Wellington Paramedic Service at the beginning of June. The service is jointly shared by the city and the county. Guelph manages while the county helps cover the costs. DCAO of Public Services Colleen Clack-Bush and Paramedic Chief Stephen Dewar led the joint council through a brief history of the service how it's managed, who pays for it, and how much they pay for it. They also talked about the consultant's report from 2016 that correctly predicted that the call volumes would increase by 46% by 2026, and despite the pandemic's challenges, the service has been able to keep pace with incremental staffing increases. That report also had recommendations about building new paramedic stations across the region, But when the current provincial government came to power in 2018, they started talking about changing land ambulance services in the province. Then COVID-19 happened. But the city finally got word earlier this year that any proposed changes to the structure of the system are now off the table. The province will instead focus on improving technology that the paramedics have access to. On the front burner right now, though, are offload delays at Guelph General Hospital, which is in the top 10% of hospitals combating delays in Ontario. The Guelph Hospital was awarded funding for a staff member to assist with those delays, but the funding expired before they could find someone to fill the position. The hospital's new CEO, Mark Walton, was also on hand for the meeting, and he explained that while the problem with offload delays are systemic, Finding solutions is his number one priority. As the presentation continued, the issues with the 10 paramedic facilities in Guelph and Wellington were discussed, following up on an information report to Council in May. With the exception of the Clare Road Emergency Station, none of the facilities are purpose-built, and all but three of the buildings are leased. Issues with the facilities vary from case to case, but some common concerns include a lack of space for showers or personal needs, not enough office space, and it seems that the paramedics are not immune from rent increases either. Potential financial options for for facilities will be part of the 2024-27 multi-year budget. Guthrie concluded the meeting by thanking paramedics on behalf of the city, the county, and the people living in Guelph and Wellington. He added, the council's need to move quickly, be bold, recognize the urgency, and obviously continue to work together. There was a lengthy agenda for the June's Committee of the Whole meeting, and one of the big items was an overview of Wellington County's delivery of social services, which was a review requested by Guelph Council last summer. Luisa Artuzo, social services administrator for the county, led the committee through an overview of housing, childcare, and Ontario Works, including how their services are funded, the changes to those services that are pending, and what the challenges they face are. How Guelph addresses those challenges will be answered in part in a special meeting about the housing situation in Guelph, which is coming in September. The meeting then moved on to the 2023 Governance Review, the first of two governance reviews that are done every term, Most of these are routine administrative changes like fixing typos or putting into writing the reflection of current practices, but committee got hung up on a couple of points around delegated authority and agenda management. The major concerns, though, the real major concerns, didn't come up until the end of the month. But for now, at Committee of the Whole, the next person heard from was David Messer, Executive Director of the Smart Cities Office, who presented the plan for winding down operations. 
The federal grant that started the office runs out at the end of the year, you see. So a summary report will be written and provided to council sometime next year, and there will be a celebration of their accomplishments this October. But, for all intents and purposes, this was the Smart Cities office last appearance at City Council. Some of their initiatives, though, will be taken over by city departments or other area nonprofits. Councillor Caron's motion to join the municipality of Trent Lakes in asking for a change to the oath of office to include a prominent mention of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people was approved. She said it was the perfect time for the motion, given that June was National Indigenous History Month, and the motion passed pretty quickly without any further query or concern. The last item was the Downtown Renewal Status Update Report. No final decisions were meant to come out of the report. It was only for information and designed to make committee aware of the intricacies around two specific downtown renewal projects, environmental assessments for Upper Wyndham plus the Allen's Dam and McDonnell Bridge area. June's planning meeting was pretty straightforward. Coming out of closed session, Mayor Guthrie reported that staff were directed to support the ratification of a new agreement between the city and the Guelph Professional Firefighters Association. The heritage designation of the Albion, the removal of a non-designated building from the Heritage Registry, and the approval of a project at 103 to 105 Victoria Road North were also passed swiftly. The one item with delegates attached was the decision report for 1373 to 1389 Gordon Street. One delegate had concerns about whether the city's stormwater system could handle the new development. On that point, staff explained that this initial assessment was written before the wastewater plans were updated in April, which showed that the water demands for the project can be handled by the system using the current figures. Councillors also talked about the growing traffic pressure on Gordon and the future needs for a signalized intersection, but the project was approved unanimously. There was a triple header at City Council on the second Wednesday of June, and it started with the presentation and passage of the audited financial statements from 2022, which Council voted to receive in a unanimous motion. After that was the first of two shareholder meetings, this one about Guelph Municipal Holdings, Inc. There wasn't much to report here, as the biggest thing that GMHI did in 2022 was sell the remaining district energy assets to Cascara Energy. So from now on, all that corporation does is manage the city of Guelph's 4.63% stake in Electra. GMHI CEO Scott Stewart did note that Guelph has experienced 34% greater benefits because of the merger when compared to the reality where Guelph Hydro continued to exist as its own entity, so perhaps that was a good decision in retrospect, he noted. The shareholder, in this case meaning council, approved receipt of the audited financial statements and the annual report. The second shareholder meeting was for Guelph Junction Railway, and overall, it was a normal year for that service as it added clients, expanded service, cleaned up the rail ties in Puss Lynch. The city of Guelph got a $164,000 dividend for 2022, while John Fisher from the Guelph Hiking Trail Club expressed disappointment that the unofficial trailhead to the Guelph to Goderich Trail is now inaccessible because of GJR's expanded service to a client there. Stewart, now acting as the CEO for GJR, reminded the shareholders that the current meeting wasn't meant to set council policy. He didn't want to discount what Fisher had to say, but he dissuaded the shareholder from making commitments before they heard from the relevant staff, who were not at the meeting. Once again, the audited financial statements and the annual report were received by the shareholder unanimously. And then what? Might have been, should have been a lazy late June meeting that merely ratified all the stuff discussed at Committee of the Whole earlier in June, turned into a major deal thanks to three simple words. Strong Mayor Powers. Technically, the topic was the ratification of that 2023 governance review, which is tangentially connected to the Strong Mayor Powers by the procedural bylaw. But Mayor Guthrie warned the 15 or 16 delegates beforehand to keep their comments to the bylaw and not to the calamity and undermining of democracy caused by Bill 3. Guthrie also announced that it was his intention on July 1, when strong mayor powers went into effect, 
to delegate authority to hire or fire the CAO, manage the organizational structure of City Hall, and appoint chairs to local boards and shared services committees back to council or the appropriate staff. Delegates wanted Guthrie to go further by asking the mayor to give notice in advance if he intends to use his veto power to codify in the procedural bylaw the delegation of powers back to staff and council, and for council to endorse repudiation of Bill 3 and the strong mayor powers. When it came time for council to make a motion, there was a change in the recommendation from Committee of the Whole due to the implementation of strong mayor powers for Guelph. In other problems, it was less than four days until those powers would go into effect, and the city of Guelph had yet to receive the provincial regulation for those powers. Staff reported that they were working off the assumption that the regulations for Guelph would be similar, if not the same, as the regulations given to Ottawa the previous fall. But since council still had to have some meetings in July, and they had to have a basis for preparing for those meetings, the whole idea of deferring the governance review till fall wouldn't work. A full report about the implementation of the changes in Bill 3 and the strong mayor powers will come back to council in September, though. But on that Saturday, July 1st, Guthrie did sign the delegation of authority on the three matters mentioned above. In terms of additional motions, council returned the 10-minute delegation to the statutory planning meeting in a 9-3 vote and added a requirement that all meetings of council will include O Canada, a moment of silent reflection, and the First Nations acknowledgement. There's also a requirement that any motion not included in the council agenda be read aloud for the benefit of meeting attendees who are visually impaired. The five amended recommendations were passed by council unanimously. At July's Committee of the Whole meeting, the final version of the new strategic plan, simply called Future Guelph, was presented. There are now four themes instead of five pillars, and an all-star team of senior staffers guided committee through each new theme step-by-step, and the plan was approved unanimously. Next, committee looked at making the seasonal patio program permanent, and the only potential sign of controversy was the implementation of a new fee structure. Richard Overland of Envy Kitchen and Bar said that the 16,000% increase in fees might dissuade some of the smaller patios from opening, and maybe even a few of the bigger ones. A number of councillors proposed amendments to the, rec- to the recommended plan, including a phase-in plan for the new fees over three years, but rather than considering all the different and sometimes conflicting financial motions, committees simply asked staff to review their funding concerns and bring options back to council for the regular meeting at the end of the month. Pulling a report about the review of city bylaws from information items released in June, Councillor Guller asked for committee support to direct staff on three particular matters. An update to the noise bylaw to allow vehicle noise cameras, changes to the bylaw to allow contained smokeless recreational wood-burning fires, and the creation of a new bylaw to ban the use and sale of fireworks. All four of Gala's recommendations were passed. The last item concerned the draft bylaw for e-scooter use on Guelph roads, which passed after some discussion about using e-scooters on multi-use paths and the city's liability. July's planning meeting heard a couple of new applications. The first one was for 25 Alice Street, where the owners want to tear down the current detached house and build a new semi-detached house. Council had no concerns about that one, since it's a largely clerical application in terms of its nature. And then there was the application for 716 Gordon Street, which has long been gestating as a future student residence building, privately owned, but being explicitly marketed to University of Guelph students, which University of Guelph is conveniently right across the street. The former Ontario Municipal Board ruled in 2013 that the developer could go ahead with four towers and a maximum height of 11 stories. That includes 1,325 bedrooms and 280 parking spaces. The new proposal is more or less the same, but with 1,149 bedrooms and 303 parking spaces. Controversy came early, though, when the two people speaking on behalf of the project were asked about what type of units these will be, condos or rentals. Mark Villamare of 
Aventus Developments did not close the door on the possibility that many of these 500-some units would be condos. But he added that those considerations are being worked out by the marketing department. When asked point-blank if their projects in London and Waterloo offered affordable units, Philomere confessed that they did not. Other council concerns included the fate of mature trees on the property, the inclusion of just 15 visitor parking spaces, and how quickly the project might begin construction once approved. Area residents delegating had their own concerns. Primary among them is the inclusion of terraces in the new project. One delegate in particular noted that the OMB decision explicitly said that balconies are incompatible with this project. Setbacks, the loss of trees, and the potential impact of increased traffic in this busy intersection were also discussed. Council had a ton of notes for staff, including the examination of the differences between this project and previous private student residence projects on Chancellor's Way and the Holiday Insight. Of particular concern was whether or not that this project, given the fact that it's a student residence, will have to pay municipal taxes, given that residents on university property do not. Still, the application was received unanimously by Council. The last item of the planning meeting was the delegation of authority update to include minor zoning bylaw amendments, including the removal of a holding provision, the appeal of temporary use, and minor changes like grammatical errors or mistakes in mapping. That recommendation was approved unanimously, but Tuesday night at council was not over just yet. The next meeting was essentially everything you ever wanted to know about housing but were afraid to ask. Mary Guthrie said that this was also the first step, which will be followed by subsequent steps in the next several weeks, including the August release of the system analysis around homelessness and mental health conducted by Collective Results, plus that September 12th council meeting that will include the affordable housing strategy update and a report from Wellington County. There were too many details to cover here, but the presentation touched on the housing continuum City of Guelph investment beyond what's mandated historical trends, the city's recent work around all plans from official to master, improvements to the application process, and challenges like legislative changes at Queen's Park, and the inordinate amount of time being spent at the Ontario Land Tribunal. CEO Stewart explained that the last several years of work on Claire Maltby, DeLime, the Guelph Innovation District, various master plans, and other reviews means that Guelph has been set up well to now capitalize on all that work and that they can start activating housing. He said that the process feels slow because it's deeply detailed work on a grand scale. Plus, he noted, Guelph has nearly 6,000 units approved just waiting for a shovel in the ground. Stewart also noted that the government of Ontario has yet to come through in making municipalities whole after changes to how we collect fees. Guthrie said that he wants the community to know that there's more to come as the city puts the proverbial puzzle pieces together. And people need to know that staff and council are united and open into hearing new ideas on how to get housing done. Part of the housing issue is funding infrastructure, and a lot of that is done through development charges. The current D.C. bylaw expires on March 2, 2024, and council will need to pass a new D.C. bylaw in order to keep collecting those fees on March the 3rd, but before a new bylaw can be passed, a background study must be completed and a meeting the next night after the housing workshop was held to present the work done so far. So what are we looking at in terms of the new rate? Right now it is $68,902 for a single and semi-detached dwelling, which is an increase from $47,839 for that same type of development. The calculation will put Guelph somewhere in the middle of the pack when it comes to many of Ontario's municipalities, but there are a couple of caveats to keep in mind. First, Guelph is one of the first municipalities to do this kind of DC review work in the post-Bill 23 environment, and staff noted that it's the expectation that many, if not all, municipalities will also see their DC rates go up. Second, the new DC calculation is based on the goal of getting just over 12,000 units built 
by 2031, which you may note is less than the 18,000 pledge that the city of Guelph signed to the province back in February. Basing the new number on the 12,000 units threshold was a concern to council, but staff noted that redoing all the work to account for the new target would take up too much time, especially when accounting for the change could simply mean taking a 10-year capital plan and doing it in six. Council was also concerned about the impact on property taxes when DCs can't cover growth like they should. And there was also some concern about how to ensure affordable units stay affordable once developers get their exemptions. Next step, have your say is collecting feedback and a final report will be released in October ahead of the statutory public meeting that month. The final bylaw will be brought to council for approval in January. There was a lot of last-minute business at council as they tried to wrap things up before their typical August vacation. First, we began with the permanent version of the seasonal patio program. Councillor O'Rourke offered an amendment to the recommendation approved at committee that the program be run as revenue neutral through any additional funding coming from the general operating tax levy and not the municipal accommodation tax. Some staffing changes essentially make the program cheaper by running it with a part-time staff member who will manage everything between the beginning of the season and the end. Although there were still some concerns about the increased fees, council seemed mostly beyond the debate. Mayor Guthrie said that we all knew that the day was coming and that there would be some additional costs to making the program permanent, and the amended recommendation was approved unanimously, and so was a follow-up motion to review the program on an annual basis. Next, the bylaw review motions. The first recommendation, which directed staff to appraise the bylaw review work plan and recommend to council any changes at an October meeting, was passed rather swiftly. But the next motion concerning the noise bylaw and a review of the use of noise cameras hit a few snags. Council itself was sympathetic, but many noted that noise cameras are presently not allowed in Ontario, so it seems a bit counterintuitive to dedicate staff time to something that's not an option. Eventually, Council approved an amended motion that read that staff will bring back to Council further consideration about noise cameras once they're legal, and that the mayor and staff will advocate to the Ontario government to legislate the technology. The next recommendation about reviewing recreational outdoor fires was more easily resolved. Clack Bush explained that her conversations with Guelph Fire staff, including the incoming fire chief, did not express any desire to review that bylaw right now, and most of council agreed, so the motion was defeated 3-9. The final recommendation about considering a review of the bylaw that governs the use, display, and sale of fireworks was passed unanimously. The new e-scooter bylaw was also swiftly, swiftly passed, so you can now lawfully use your e-scooter on any City of Guelph road, multi-use path, or cycling track. That left a new item that emerged on the amended agenda the Friday before, a motion from Guthrie, though technically put on the floor by Goller and Clausen, requesting that staff partner with the Home for Good campaign to leverage up to $500,000 from the city's affordable housing reserve for matching funds. That money will be allocated to the completion of the Kindle Community Supportive Housing Project on Sheldale Crescent. From the mayor's tone, he seemed to think the matter was a slam dunk. He said that the Home for Good campaign has a proven track record for turning half a million dollars into more than a million dollars, and that the money's, quote, just sitting there, unquote, in the city's accounts anyway. Council gave consent for three guests to take part in the discussion, United Way Executive Director Glenna Banda and Guelph Community Foundation Executive Director Chris Willard, both of whom are co-chairs of the Home for Good campaign, and the third person was Family and Children's Services Executive Director Daria Allen Ebron. Councillor Boostil began probing by asking about the review of the money spent so far on supportive housing and how it's been allocated. Her point was that the city has established a request for proposals process for how money from the affordable housing reserve is spent, which includes insight from the city's housing provider, Wellington County. Councillor Michelle Richardson echoed Boostil's concerns, saying that she also didn't like the rapid way that this request had come forward. 
The main issue is that there are numerous pieces of funding raised by Home for Good which are contingent on reaching certain targets. To put a number on it, Home for Good needed to get to $770,500 by August 15th. What would happen to that funding, especially a big piece from the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, if the August 15th target was missed, was a question that no one could answer. While some councillors said that the motion was a net positive, despite whatever discomforts they may have had about the process, it seemed that team process had the momentum. O'Rourke, who was a board member for both the United Way and the Community Foundation, noted that everyone at the council table wanted this project to succeed, but she was concerned about the lack of documentation, with the exception of the letter that was sent to the mayor, plus the lack of staff recommendation. Stewart eventually chimed in to say that staff were largely quiet in this exchange because they have no information to work with, so if council was waiting for staff advice, they had none to offer. He then suggested that staff could sit down with all parties so that, so that they can get all the information on the table and then come back to council with a fully formed recommendation. O'Rourke and Bustatil moved a referral of the recommendation to an emergency meeting of council that will be held on August 16th. Stewart said that it's his intention that staff will operate with a sense of urgency. Guthrie noted that it wasn't council saying no, it was council saying we'll see and the motion to refer passed unanimously. So that's the year at council so far. The next meeting, the next official meeting of city council will be on Wednesday, September 6th, and the agenda for that meeting will be posted on the City of Guelph's website on Thursday, August the 24th. That emergency meeting we just talked about is scheduled on Wednesday, August 16th at 6 p.m., and the agenda is on the city's website now, and so is the Guelph Politico preview, except it's on the Guelph Politico site. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. We'll be running a repeat next week and then return with another brand new episode on August the 30th. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Source's Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you in a couple of weeks. And until then, see you next time. <laughs>